I was 11 years old. My best friend asked me if I had a crush on anyone and I confided in them that I was gay. Literally the next day, it was like a witch hunt. Basically everyone had teamed up and they were all following me around the school pretty much all day. This is In The Key of Q, featuring musicians from around the world who inspire my queer identity. Everybody is welcome to the conversation, whatever beautiful identity pleases you. Music helps us feel connected and know that we are not alone. This program is made possible thanks to the financial support of listeners like you over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dan Hall. Tune in and be heard. This week's guest is an alternative pop artist based in Cardiff, Wales. They started a solo career in 2018 and have gone on to support 65 Days of Static, Georgia, and a particular favourite of mine, Public Service Broadcasting. In 2020, their debut album Queer Genesis was released. It's a beautiful exploration of queer culture and identity. A big welcome here at In the Key of Q to Lloyd Guest, aka Dead Method. Lloyd, hello. Hello. As a very young child, my mum used to listen to lots of music, lots of singing around my house as well. Um, so we used to listen to um, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill together and just sing pretty much every song top to bottom, probably every day. Um, and then when I got into um, primary school, um, that's when I really discovered that I had a voice that people wanted to hear. Um, so I used to be like the lead singer in the the choirs when we did plays and things like that. Can you remember where the point was at which you realised that just listening to music wasn't going to be satisfying enough and that you needed to create it too? I've always been really creative, so I can't pinpoint it to any sort of memory. Um, but it, there was a, a separation between me singing and writing poetry. Um, and sometime I would say probably in high school, um, I realized that, well, actually I can sing this poetry that I'm writing. Um, and then that sort of flourished into songwriting. So you were creating poetry and music in two separate lines. Thinking about your poetry, what kind of things would, was this kid writing about? Um, it's probably not very good now. (laughs) Um, it was all probably very sad and depressing and, you know, kind of like the new the new uh, stuff that I write, I suppose. But um, I remember, I, I do have one memory of being in English class and we'd all been tasked with writing a poem and then we all had to read it out in front of the class. And I read mine out and a bunch of people ended up crying. And I was like, okay, that was, and that was like probably my first memory of someone reacting to something I'd created 
in a positive way. And how did that make you feel, realising you could have that effect? Um, it probably weirded me out a little bit at first. Um, it took time for me to be comfortable with people sort of hearing stuff that I created and offering feedback or even offering a, a, an emotion in return. Um, so I, I think it took a lot of time for me to get comfortable with that. Why is it you think that art forms, in this case poetry, can have that kind of visceral reaction on people. What is it about it, do you think, that, that does that to us? It's probably to do with our shared experiences. Um, and poetry or, or songwriting is um, often when you're listening to something someone else has created, you realise that you have a shared experience and it might remind you of something that you've suppressed or you're holding on to. Um, and it can be cathartic, I suppose, to to hear it from someone else's perspective. I didn't start to really work on my own music until I went to college. Um, and that's when I sort of found the freedom to that I could do it and that I could learn these skills. And so how did you go about starting to turn this passion for music into something you were actually starting to create? Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I left high school and I went to do A-levels thinking I was going to be a writer um, and a journalist because I'd sort of convinced myself that that was my passion. So I did two years of A-levels studying media studies and English language and literature. And then when I got to the end of those, I realised that actually that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I took up another course um, for popular music technology. Um, so I could learn about songwriting and um, and production, and then eventually went on to do a degree um, in that as well. And then it was a case of basically just figuring out, you know, what kind of um, professional music person I wanted to be. Like, did I want to be an artist? Did I want to be in the background? Um, and that, you know, that takes a lot of time to figure out. But artistry really is where I've constantly come back to. There were people in my life who were cheerleading me and telling me I could do it. And then there were other people who were not so positive. And really, it's only in the last, say, two years that I've made a conscious choice to, to actually pursue that sort of theatrical level of artistry that feels right for me. So how on earth did you react when you had people saying to you, don't do this. Don't don't quite be yourself. You know, you're you're not a you're not a big pop star. Just calm it down. Who do you think you are? Um, so at, at first, I listened to them, which was a, a really stupid thing to do. I made myself smaller. Um, I tried to you know just to fit in and keep my head down when really that's not what I'm all about. Um, 
So for years, you know, I just kept my head down, made myself smaller and eventually it sort of just bubbled over and I just thought, I fuck this, I just got to just do what I want to do. But there are still people, um, especially in, in Wales, where attitudes towards LGBT people can be a bit shaky at times, um, especially in the music industry. I find there's, there's quite a lot of pushback from the sort of like corporate and business side of the music. But in terms of people listening and being a fan of stuff, I've made a lot more fans in the last two years than I did working five years in a band before that. And how would you describe your sound now? So the, the main descriptor I would use is alternative pop. But with this new record that I'm working on, we really chased a more commercial pop sound. Um, so really inspired by the greats like Lady Gaga and Madonna. Um, and that it felt really natural to, to sort of find that sound. Um, the alternativeness comes from the subject matter. So I'm talking about, you know, queer problems and relationships and things like that, that maybe aren't so radio friendly. Why do you think it's important as queer people that we hear our stories in music? Um, because if, if we don't tell our stories, nobody else is. There's so much to explore that hasn't been explored. Um, and I think it's important to amplify those types of voices. And invisibility is toxic. Exactly. If you look at mainstream um, podcasts and things like that, you know, a lot of queer artists aren't being invited onto those things. There's, there's no seat at the table for, for queer people in the music industry. So we have to make our own spaces and our own table. I totally agree with you. And Lloyd, I think you should reach out to Carrington Kelso, who was one of my wonderful guests in Series 1. And he says exactly that. He's, he says, we should stop trying to get a seat at other people's table. Let's make our own table and all rise together. Exactly. I totally agree. Cardiff's changed quite a bit since since I was a child. It was a, still the the capital city of Wales, but it was much um, much quieter. It's a lot more busy and bustling now. It's not as queer friendly as I would like it to be. Um, and growing up, it was a very hard place to grow up as a queer person, especially as an out queer person. I've been out since I was very young, um, and there was just no hiding the fact that I was gay. So you know, I had no choice really. Um, my family luckily have always been very supportive and loving. So I think that that made life a little bit easier. Uh, school was terrible. Um, I went to a, a Catholic high school, um, and I was the only out gay person, um, in the school until obviously after everyone left, everyone started coming out. But, um, I was basically the, the main target that people would go for in school. Um, it was just constant um, remarks from people, you know, people constantly coming up to me trying to make gay jokes and things like that. Um, sometimes violence, um, they're just incessant, like it would ne never end. I used to dread going to school. What do you say to people who go, well, that's just the rough and tumble of school life? I don't think that's the case. 
especially when I, it's, it might be different now. I don't know. I haven't been in school for a very long time. Um, but back then, even the, the teachers were in on the joke, you know, they, there was never any support from the teachers. Some of them would even, you know, be, allow that sort of behavior to fester. And I, from things that I've seen in like re- school reports in the UK and things like that recently, not much has changed. They just allow bullying, um, for, for things like being LGBT. And I just think, I think it's disgusting. I think you don't realize until you're older that those are grown adults and that they should have a handle on the situation and they should be there to protect vulnerable children. And more often than not, they weren't. And what effect did this have on you? Probably a, a fairly negative one. I think um, that ties into why I sort of diminished myself later in life and made myself smaller just to avoid that sort of stuff happening as an adult. And it's only really the last couple of years that I've just thought, you know, this, this doesn't make you happy and those people are going to do what they do no matter what. So you just have to be yourself um, and maybe change a few minds along the way. Um, but it, it took a lot of unlearning. And I think people unfairly say, oh, you should just man up. You should have thicker skin. Because I don't think they necessarily realize how formative these years are at school under which we suffer these scars. And they mm-hmm. don't always have to be, we were cornered in a corridor and beaten to a pulp. It is, like you said rather eloquently earlier, it's just this constant drip, drip, and it makes you dread going into school. One of, one of my guests talked about how he tried to avoid homophobic bullying at school by always making sure he left lessons five minutes early so that mm-hmm. he didn't have to walk the corridors when everybody else was wandering around them. I mean, this is just terrible. Exactly. And when you think about it, you know, they're children. I was a child, like you shouldn't have, children shouldn't have to worry about that kind of thing. They will obviously always be bullying, but then that's what the teachers are there for, to, to, to stop that and to, to nullify that behaviour. And coming up with the line, there will always be bullying, that is no answer to sit and do sod all to sort it out. No, absolutely not. We get dressed up, it's ceremonial. A bloody nose paints my skin. We pray for a brighter day. We gather on the dance floor, leave our troubles at the door. You know, I used to uh, avoid eye contact with people when I was walking in the street and just sort of stay out of people's way. Um, you know, I didn't used to, to speak my mind or to make my opinion known. Um, and especially working in the music industry, those are, are skills you need to have as an artist. Otherwise, people will walk all over you and you'll just lose opportunities left, right and centre to people who are willing to speak their mind and, you know, let their opinion be known. And more often than not, those are straight white men. Um, so unless you're willing to to put yourself out there, you just get steamrolled. I think a, a, it probably happened a lot more when I was in doing my degree. Um, so I was the only queer person on my course. Um, and there were, there were tons of opportunities for like live music sessions and things like that, um, that 
they were generally group sessions. And had I felt more comfortable, I would have joined in. Um, but because of the, you know, that it was a course of just lads basically, and I didn't feel comfortable working with them. I didn't feel safe. And so I just sort of kept myself to myself and just did the, the bare minimum to get by really. People unfairly will often go, you should just have your voice. You should you just, just be able to jump on it and, and know that it is there. But if we don't feel valued, we really do close in on ourselves and end up with a very toxic space of feeling like our voices have no value. So why, why mention them? Yeah, and, and if you don't feel safe to, to, you know, to be somewhere in a space, um, you, you're not going to want to engage. Um, and you know, it's not on us as queer people to, to make those spaces safe because we're not the ones making them unsafe. And I think that's something that people often forget is that whenever we walk into a space that's new to us or features new people, we have to come out every single time because we live in a heteronormative world where the assumption is usually that we're straight. And mm -hmm. so we have to either come out or drop into conversation that that we're gay simply because we're not understood or people don't understand where we're coming from or there's a relevance to it and we have to do that again and again and every time we have to do that we're also having to do a subconscious safety check is this a safe space for me to come out is this a safe space for me to be myself and i'm 48 i still do that every single day exactly and if, if you don't feel safe you're not going to want to come out in that space and therefore you'll you know you'll recede back to to wherever you do feel safe and there are so many spaces um to bring it back to the music industry like within the music industry where that is the case if you don't feel safe you know you're not gonna do your best or be heard properly what was the point at which you started to feel that tide was turning and that actually you had a bloody voice and you were going to get people to hear it. So it probably happened about three, maybe four years ago now. Um, so I was in a band, it was called Dead Method, um, but it was me and then a, a group of other guys. Um, and the music was very different from, from what it is now. And we were lucky enough to get onto this um, artist development scheme called The Forte Project. Um, and when we were invited onto that, we were then surrounded by tons of other different types of artists. Um, and I started to realize that even within that music scene, I still didn't fit in. I still didn't feel like I was a part of it. I just felt like furniture that was, you know, not supposed to be there. Um, and there came a time then, a little while later, I started to meet some other artists who are based in Cardiff or around Cardiff who are a bit more like me. Um, and I saw them doing, you know, or being themselves really and doing the music the way they wanted to do it. And then that started to inspire me to, to push myself. Um, and then there came a time where I was just, I just had enough then. I was just, this is what I wanted to do. And I was going to do it no matter what. Um, and whoever was on board was on board. And whoever wasn't, wasn't. Um, and that led to, to tensions within the band, really, um, which eventually we, we broke up. And I started just doing, you know, what I wanted on my own terms. Oh. 
My original coming out was not a choice. Um, so we were, I was 11 years old, um, just started high school. I think we were in our second year, maybe. Um, and my best friend asked me if I had a crush on anyone and I confided in them that I was gay. Um, and then they were like, oh, who do you fancy? And I didn't actually fancy anyone at that time. Um, but I just gave them a random name of this boy who was in our school year. Um, cut to the, literally the next day. It had been passed around the entire school, so everybody knew. Um, and there was it was like a witch hunt, basically. Everyone had teamed up and they were all following me around the school pretty much all day, trying to ask me questions, trying to bully, blah, 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 blah. And that was my first sort of real experience with homophobia. And it was, you know, it was not easy. It was not nice. Um, but I'm glad that it happened that way because otherwise I might not have come out for, for years. And you had to deal with this at 11. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it wasn't easy, but it was, um, it shaped me into who I am. If I hadn't had the, you know, the, the support from the family side, I think it, it would have been a, you know, a different, different outcome dealing with school. Uh, would have been a lot harder, but because there was somewhere safe to go home to at the end of the day, it wasn't so bad. Did you get any support at school for all of this? Um, not really. Like I said, it was a Catholic school and the teachers were either complicit or they would ignore it. Teachers back then probably had very stern political beliefs about um, LGBT people. And it was just on the back end of um, Section 28. So, um, there was still a lot of that attitude of not talking about it or not, you know, not bringing any attention to it. And for those of our international listeners listening to this, Section 28 was a law brought in by Margaret Thatcher's government in the late 1980s that, to quote, forbade the promotion of homosexuality uh, in publicly funded organizations. So, that could be schools, libraries, anything. Quite what promotion meant was a total legal blur and could mean pretty much anything, couldn't it? It could mean mm -hmm. even letting an LGBT support group rent out a room in a library. Exactly. And it, it just led to people just not talking about it at all. And most critically, it meant that kids in schools, when they would go to their teachers and say, I'm being homophobically bullied or I'm gay, I need some support, the schools to these pupils who are at their most vulnerable would turn around and go, we cannot support you. It's against the law. Exactly. It's terrible. So was the school experience, would you describe that as being something that was traumatic for you? Very much so, yeah. I think um, it informed a lot of my sort of um, th the way I carried myself for, for years to come after I finished school. Um, 
and I'm, I'm sure that's true for everyone, but in this case, it had a negative impact. Join us every week on A Queer Understanding and hear stories of self-discovery. I want to be a boy because I believe that I am a boy. So of course at that time, they called my parents. Me and the guy ended up fooling around. I, I was honestly thinking like, wow, like this is what I've been missing. Challenges. A ton of them is called survival sex. They're not out there because they love it. The police basically told me to get out of the station because they hate gays and we make them sick. Ian triumphs. The reason why I think I was successful is that I wasn't running as the gay candidate. I was asking people to vote for me because I care about the same things that they care about. Listen to A Queer Understanding everywhere you listen to your podcasts. Now then, Lloyd, usually when I finish recording this program, I'll poodle into the edit and uh, chop us around a little bit and make us sound lovely and erudite. But for the next two or so minutes, I'm not going to get out my red pencil at all. I'm going to guarantee to you that for the next couple of minutes, the floor is all yours to talk about whatever you want. It can be something we've already spoken about or something completely new. So I think I'd like to talk about um, my my new project, my album, uh, Femme, which will be coming out this year. Um, it might even be out by the time this episode airs, I'm not sure. Um, making this project was a, a really healing experience. I was able to work with a gay producer um, for the first time um, and have that level of comfort when making the music that I could just say what I wanted and try new things and not be worried about the opinions of the the people around me because they were there to support and to you know offer helpful suggestions and if something didn't work it didn't matter because we could just try something else um so that there's a lot of songs on this album that really um were things that i needed to hear and i think a lot of people will connect with those things um, so the, the album is called Femme because it's about embracing the, the feminine aspect of yourself or the queer aspect, um, whatever makes you unique. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think people are going to really love it. So I'm really proud of it. What do you think your 15 year old self would think about you now and what you're doing? I think. I think me and my 15 year old self are totally different people. Um, I was not a very happy person when I was 15, so I probably wouldn't like me now because I'm very happy and, <laughs> and content. Um, I think at first glance, we probably wouldn't be friends, but maybe if we spent some time together, um, the younger version of me would learn how to accept themselves a bit more and um, you don't have to be so closed up you don't have to be a bitch to everyone um because not everyone is out to hurt you um but to trust your instincts 
Do you think your 15-year-old self would recognize you, the adult you now, as a progression of who they are? Or would they seem alien? I think it would seem alien. Um, I think so much of my sort of transformation um, into it in my adult life has happened in the last couple of years. Um, and that's because I there's so much trauma to to unpack and to deal with from when I was younger. So I think we're t- two totally different people. Where can we find you online, Lloyd? Um, so I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, all that. Just search for Dead Method and I should pop up. Um, I, I also have a website, deadmethod.co.uk. Um, and obviously on Spotify, Apple Music, um, anywhere you can stream music, Bandcamp, just search for Dead Method and I should be the first thing that pops up. I like to close the episodes by asking my guests for their gateway song. And this is a song which, for people that don't know your material, will act as a perfect introduction to your catalogue, both past and future. So what would your gateway song be and why? So my gateway song is Femme, which is the title track from my new album. The reason I chose this is because um, it's the opener to the to the new album and it really sort of consolidates all of the the new experience the new version of dead method that i wanted to create it's upbeat it's happy um it still has that that wit and that sort of um nihilistic tone to it um but it's all tongue-in-cheek and it's a lot of fun um and like i said earlier in the episode i really needed to learn to to not take myself too seriously and to have fun Um, and I think this song is the perfect representation of that I won't be cast in shadow cause I live for the
Lloyd Guest, thank you so much for coming on In the Key of Q and sharing your story and your music with us. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. I've had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can support In the Key of Q via Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Theme music is by Paul Lee Nidu at unstoppablemonsters.com with press and PR by Paul Smith. Help others discover new queer musicians by rating and reviewing In the Key of Q wherever you find podcasts. Thanks to Kaj and Murray for their continued support and to you for subscribing. The show is made of Puck Media. I'm Dan Hall. Go listen to some music, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Matthew Akblu is our next guest on In the Key of Q. And that's the thing with pop music. You can put it into so many different genres and it's still freaking dope. That's Matthew Akplu, our next guest on In the Key of Cube.